Hi there. Welcome back to Destination USA from Index Ventures, our series of first-hand accounts of how Europe's leading entrepreneurs and operators expanded their businesses to the US. This week, Index's VP Insights, Dominic Jackson, speaks with Trustpilot founder, Peter Holton-Wulman. One of the best things we did in America was to guarantee the bonus for the employees. The great thing about Denmark is that there's this safety net that allows you to focus on what matters, that allows you to take chances, that allows you to build. CEO Peter Holton-Wulman founded Trustpilot in Denmark in 2007 with a vision to create an independent currency of trust. Trustpilot hosts over 120 million customer reviews and has 700 employees, 23% of whom are in the U.S. Over the last 13 years, Peter has led Trustpilot from a small Danish startup to an international multi-million dollar company, which just listed on the London Stock Exchange in March 2021. In America, building a company is really the national sport. People love to build businesses and people love to do sales. Sales is really also a profession in America, much more than it is in, in European countries. Dominic and Peter talk about Trustpilot's growth in Europe before launching the US, critical hires, and how to achieve brand awareness in a new market. Let's go. So, Peter, welcome to the Destination USA podcast and congratulations on the IPO. Uh, can you tell us how you celebrated? Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, it was very weird in the sense that I had imagined this big uh, IPO party and you see everybody ringing the gong uh, and so on. And uh, then the uh, corona reality of it was that it was uh, my mom and my sister and my girlfriend and uh, we, we popped a little glass of champagne. But then in the evening, some friends uh, surprised me and uh, we had a little five-person party. And then um, the day after, I went to Bali in my dreams, uh, but uh, just uh, <laughs> woke up in Copenhagen. <laughs> and, and where did the actual idea for Trustpilot come from then? So... With Trustpilot, go back to, in your mind, to 2007, e-commerce was at its infancy. And I think the, the idea came from, from two places. There, there were really, lots of people around me had very bad, very poor e-commerce experiences. Um, and, and it felt like the Wild West in some sense, like very exciting, lots of opportunity, but also a little bit dangerous. Um, at the same time, I had my... My, my, my business where I started selling on, on the eBay's of the world. And in eBay, I, I had a lot of trust because they, they, there was trust in that platform. I had tens of thousands of, of, of positive feedback points. But I didn't want to refer anybody to, to my eBay site because I had hundreds of competitors there trying to sell cheaper cables than I did. And so I realized I, I needed a you can say independent third party to to show that I had a trusted site. Otherwise, people would just buy it in the store or buy it from the competition. And so, so I, I built Trustpilot as a place where people like my mom could always get a great experience. That was the goal. And so, if mom gets a new kitchen, or if mom buys a trip to friends, or if if mom buys anything on it, I want her to get a great experience every single time. And if you're an entrepreneur starting a business, and 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 you go that can say famous extra mile i want you to be able to to win against larger companies because you deserve it or if you're a large company i want to transform your business these days but but yeah that that's how it started 
Did you already have the ambition for Trustpilot to be global or international from day one? And in particular, did you envisage the US becoming a critical market for you at that point, as opposed to having maybe pan-European ambitions or so? Yeah, so so I started out actually very ambitious. I was reading a lot of uh, TechCrunch, and, and it seemed to me that the way you did it was that you... Um, started a company and 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 then you'd raise millions of dollars and then very rapidly you'd grow into uh, a big global company. Uh, <laughs> so 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 easy. Um, <laughs> very easy, <laughs> very easy. And I think in some sense that's the the beautiful part of being young is that sometimes you're very naive, and maybe without that naivety, like like if I started. Trustpilot in, in, in my age today, I'd be like, no, it's not going to work for this reason and that reason, and you haven't thought about this. And there are so many things I hadn't thought about, thankfully, uh, and, and so many things, thankfully, I underestimated um, that uh, from day one, I was just absolutely sure this was going to be a, a big global company uh, fast. And, and yes, uh, definitely, America was part of that. Uh, that was a part of the... Um, you can say the TechCrunch playbook. So although we didn't start out in America right away, um, it was always a part of the the dogma that if you wanted to win the internet, you also had to win America. So given that, how, how did you get started in Denmark, since that was your home market? And in particular, how did you make your first few, you know, sort of onboard your first few merchants uh, and bring them, you know, bring them in to get that loop started? Yeah, so what happened was really that we just started as a place where where people would share reviews of businesses. And at the time, um, I thought that the business model was, was, was going to be an ad-based business model. But the beautiful thing about starting a business in Denmark is that Denmark is very, very small. So, um, so, so, so I think every time we had a thousand visits, we would get eight kroner. So that's a little more than one euro. And so with, with say, Say five thousand visitors. That's five euro for you. So I can buy half a half a, a trip to the cinema for one team member. So so the business model scaled poorly, um, and then I, I realized well actually the the businesses that are showcasing their star rating. I, I spoke with some of them. Um, spoke with a, with an online bike store. And I them, so how much more are you, are you making if you, if you can really show that, that you're a trusted site? And, and for that company, that was 20%. So the revenue in a normal year was a million pounds. And, and with this, it was 1.2 million pounds. So if they could show that, they made so much more money. And, and I thought, hey, you know what? They're only doing that because we are investing so much into the integrity of the platform, into those tools. So it's fair that they, they pay, pay for a share of that. Um, and and so then we uh, we started uh, calling the ones that did it and said, uh, hey, like we we have to start charging for it. And I remember speaking with, I think it was one of the first I called, and and he was like, okay, so how much is it? And I hadn't thought about that. And so I just came up with a number. I was like, um, ten euros per month, something like that, or maybe it was thirty, but very very nominal <laughs> number. And so then he bought two months. And tried with some others. They didn't want to pay for it. I was a little disillusioned. But then others would. And, and I realized most people uh, actually thought that, that they, I mean, they, they were happy to pay a little. That led me to, um, 
starts saying, hey, actually, there, there is an audience for businesses that want to pay for this. And so I just sat down and started to call businesses and tried to tell them about the benefits of being able to signify that they were having a great customer experience. So at the time, if you told a business that their customers were looking at what other customers thought before they bought, most businesses thought that was pretty crazy. But uh, some businesses said, yeah, you know what, like I, I invest so much in the customer service and my competition does not, but I don't get rewarded. Uh, I really want to do this. Uh, and so I think I spent a good mo nine months just um, calling companies and then slowly uh, hiring a few um, a few others uh, like like we we asked uh, in the in the local football club like <laughs> like who were the best salespeople there was some insurance company they had two guys my age uh, we hired them they turned out to be much better than I was um, and 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 then we were we were off. That's fantastic. And and at that point, did you did you have any funding for the business? Were you bootstrapping? Did you had any you know, did you have any thought of like getting taking funding from external sources? Yeah, I, I had quite a lot of funding, roughly hundred thirty thousand dollars from my father's cousin, and which in some sense maybe ironically uh, was overfunded because it it led me to wait way too long to take those painful calls. I don't know if anybody's tried, but cold calling uh, businesses that don't necessarily, that have not heard about you and don't want to speak with you, it's pretty grueling. Uh, and so I, I put that off for a very, very long time until I absolutely had to. <laughs> Love it. So, so you started to develop this traction in Denmark and then uh, yeah, you, that led to you expanding into the UK next, right? So I, which, which is Interesting. I'd love to know, like, at what point you start to think, okay, we can take this international, and what was the the trigger, and also why the UK? It does remind me a little bit of how Just Eat from also from Denmark and how Spotify grew out of their sort of Nordic home markets. But what was your rationale for choosing the UK as the next market as well? So I knew that the the need was international. Um, and and I realized that uh, th there were a couple of advantages with the UK market. One was a fairly big market. Two, my English was reasonably good, uh, and and I didn't speak the other European languages very well. And also, it was possible for me to recruit English-speaking salespeople out of Denmark. And and so so I started just uh, again. Uh, cold calling British businesses, which if I thought cold calling Danish businesses was brutal, then, then cold calling British businesses was really brutal. So you started to build and expand in the UK, as you outlined. You grew into other European markets rather than going to the US. So I'm, I'm curious, like, why not go straight to the US at that point? I, I, I knew that, that entering America, winning America would require a lot of money and would require us to set up a local presence. Whereas I could hire Europeans uh, in Denmark. I could find people that would speak Dutch. I could find people that were speaking German, French speakers, Italian speakers. Um, and I think whilst I'm pretty happy where the business is today, I wasn't enormously disciplined with it either. It was very much also by, I mean, you have to imagine us, we're a like we're very young, we're very opportunistic, very much like, oh, um, this is a German student. He wants to work for Trustpilot. 
he thinks he can sell into Germany. Should we give it a shot? Yeah, let's go. I mean, is there is there something as well about the sort of fact that e-commerce in particular is there's this sort of there's cross-border effects, and I suppose within and between European markets. Yeah, there, there was definitely yeah yeah. I need to be nicer to myself also because because that's uh, that that's definitely true. Uh, that 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 what we did see was that because we had all these UK customers, the UK at the time, to some extent, it still is even after Brexit, was really the home of of, of cross border commerce in Europe. So we had a lot of UK customers that said, oh, we also have a domain in the Netherlands. Can you turn that on for us? Oh, we also have a domain in France. Can you turn that on for us? And then we started to get Dutch and French reviewing other businesses who then became familiar with us, who then wanted to hear about how we can help them. And and so so in some sense, you can say that the UK did start the, the UK flywheel uh, for us. Yeah. So then you sort of built out, as you said, first remotely and, you know, you know, in, across into different European markets. So let's let's turn to the US then. When and how did you plan for and then first sort of start to look at the US market? I think it's uh, five, six years into the business. So we started the business in 2007. So around 2012, 2013, we start to get serious about it and you have to forgive my memory maybe somebody will look it up and say it's 2011 but in, in, in <laughs> it's a ballpark figures it's it's we had a fairly strong base we we had i think um between 50 and 100 people and the uk was really rolling for us um i think uh, index ventures had had invested and we thought uh, yeah absolutely we can win america and so 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 we 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 took a few of our best salespeople on the UK market and um, gave them an incentive to come in in afternoons and evenings instead and just say, hey, give it a try, see what's possible. Uh, and, and they did that for, I think, three, four months and, and the results were, were strong. Uh, so, so it turned out, okay, like uh, we, we actually have a play in, in, in America also. And, and so we decided, let's open an office there. Let's, let, let's do it. Wow. So how did you target like in those like early months remote selling in? What sort of merchants were you targeting in the US to to get going on? Presumably this was building on your learning from entering new markets, but at the same time realizing the US is quite a different proposition. We're very um you numbers oriented or, or, or data oriented in the sense that we, we would analyze a domain on all kinds of parameters. And we'd say it cannot be too big or too small. If it's too big, their brand is too established. Uh, they don't really. Amazon doesn't need Trustpilot yet. Um, if they're too small, then they they haven't gotten to that you can say stage in the journey yet. Um, are they using Google Analytics? If they're not using Google Analytics, they're they're not sophisticated enough as their journey as an e-commerce business or something equivalent to a Google Analytic. And so we would look at all kinds of trades uh, for the website and then score them. And and uh, we'd also look at if maybe they were using Trustpilot for free on the freemium version. So somebody that knows us already, you say more likely to have a positive conversation you, with you than somebody who does not. Uh, and 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 the European. Um, you can say consumers that use Trustpilot also had uh, bought from American businesses. And so if, if we could show some of these American businesses, hey, uh, I mean, we may not be 
say, famous in America, but you have European customers and they're using Trustpilot and they're using Trustpilot to talk about your business. That could also mean that you are more likely to have a conversation with the business than uh, than, than not. And and we had some thoughts about which sectors are more likely to to uh, to start using something like this. And and so then you you know, did you find anything different or surprising about the U.S. market? Oh, it sounds naively, but everything was uh, was surprising. <laughs> and things surprised me that really shouldn't surprise me. I think the the first surprise is how big America is, and I think sometimes it's hard to get your head around uh, as a European, just how enormous the market is, and and also what that means, and also just how how much is going on in America. And so, for example, in in a lot of European countries, they were they were so small that we could rely just on the press writing about us. Not in America, right? The second you get attention, like like two minutes later, Justin Bieber will get arrested or Trump will tweet something and your fame is over. And if you're running a business in America, because it's really truly in Denmark, if you if you start a business in Denmark, you don't have a lot of German companies calling you. You don't have a lot of Spanish companies trying to sell something to you. So, so you basically just have... I mean, at least that was what it was back then. But but you do have a lot of less inbound sales or, or sales direct sales requests. Whereas in America, you constantly have the whole of America trying to sell to you, and and you have the whole of America fighting for your attention. And so the requirement for having a sharp message and and for having something that can be understood in two seconds is just so much bigger in that market. The threshold for getting above that attention span is just so much bigger than in any other market. And also, if, if you're relying on, say, network effects, the time it takes for those to develop. So so the size definitely, and I mean, it shouldn't surprise me, but it did surprise me. But but, but then something that, that I think surprised me in a positive way, which maybe I should also have expected, is that, is that in America, building a company is really the national sport. People love to build businesses and people love to do sales. Sales is really also a profession in America, much more than it is in, in European countries. In a lot of European countries, I find um, sales is less, there's less social status in telesales and sales. Whereas in America, like if you're a VP sales or a direct, like a salesperson, like that's a great job. That enthusiasm that the Americans are bringing to the table in terms of, you can say, building businesses and, and, and running sales and so on, uh, also uh, surprised me. So, so you then you, you started to get some traction. At what, what point did you put boots on the ground? We did that pretty early. So, yeah. So, so we, we spent three, four months selling to the U.S. with, with our U.K. Salesforce out of Copenhagen. And um, very quickly, we just moved those two people over. And, and, and we hired a, a VP of, uh, that was the local, you can say, American leader. Uh, and we were just phenomenally lucky with that hire. He, he turned out to be absolutely great. What we got right was this had to be a person that had built something. Like there's a certain type of hire that's good at coming in and taking over 100 people. Yeah. And, and, and creating structure in that. And there's a certain type of hire that has, start, has built things from scratch. And, and that's really what, what we were good at finding was a builder. It's a really good point. And you have, often we talk about, I talk about the sort of the first generation hire and the second generation hire. And it's that the builder and then the scaler sort of uh, split. 
Exactly. And, and even though in, in, in the European business, we were at that scaler higher in America, we were totally like, like you're at the builder. Was that something you realized in retrospect where you went, that was part of the profile you deliberately looked for? Yeah, we, we, we very deliberately looked for someone who wasn't, you can say, uh, head of sales running a hundred million division at Salesforce. It's fine if they had grown up in Salesforce as a salesperson, but but the reason we hired them was really that they had started sales teams from nothing. So, just alongside alongside the U.S. expansion, let's return to your fundraising. How did the sort of your thought thinking about fundraising develop? Did you do a raise at all specifically to fund the U.S.? The, the American VCs have really built a, a great brand that if you want to win America, like you absolutely need an American. So I was definitely enamored by that uh, Silicon Valley marketing brochure. You say it as if you're not quite convinced that it's true. <laughs> I'm sort of curious to know what you actually think nowadays. Uh, no, it is, it is true to some extent. So, so I think a number of things. I think, first of all, you should totally, if you're fundraising, um, I, I actually, I, I do believe that it is useful to have an American VC. Uh, I just think sometimes a little funny how, how how some of the funds are really, you can say, portrayed as these oracles, uh, like like the 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 uh, wise among the wise. And at the end of the day, everybody is just a person. Uh, but so 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 I do think it's useful uh, if you want to enter America. I do think it it really 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 helps to get uh, a US VC on board. They have connections you don't. They, they have a knowledge that you don't have. Uh, so, so absolutely do it. But, but at the same time, I, I do think that there's a little bit of hype in it. This thing that w- the second the European VCs gets, gets you can say, noise that you're like, like pitching in Silicon Valley, they're like, ooh, like, like suddenly they're more interested, which is also <laughs> a weird, weird uh, phenomena. Um, in particular, if, I, if you have real interest, then suddenly, like if 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 one of the you can say top five American funds, uh, you can say wants to give you a term sheet, then the day before, like if you turned your local VC upside down, like like you would have like ten euros <laughs> and like fall out of their pocket, and they'll grab it and say like not for you. And then uh, when you get that top five, uh, you could say American VC, like they're suddenly like, oh, I want to do my prorata and more. Uh, and there's no limit to the support you have. But I, I think unless you have an extraordinary case, you're better off raising European money as a European startup until you have a really good traction, and, and, and then you can think about the Americans. But I've had these fun meetings where they're like, oh, yeah, so this is a graph showing Instagram's growth. This is a graph showing your growth. And so they have like one curve is going straight through the roof and the other curve is completely horizontal. And then they're like, explain to us, why are you not growing like Instagram? <laughs> and so, so yes, yeah, so, so we succeeded having good traction and we succeeded in uh, raising money from um, Draper Fisher Jurvetson. Uh, previously, they, the, the, the European company they had invested in were, were Skype. So we were in good company. And to their credit... Uh, I, I really enjoyed working with them. Um, I'd say that was the case where the hype was real. So when you, when you look at then the, the running and organization of the U.S. business now, how, how autonomous is it? Like, do you, you said you hired that U.S. GM originally. Do you have like still an individual running U.S. president or is everything linked, tied in to the sort of global functional leads in sales and support and marketing? So... Um, in terms of 
you can say the U.S. business. It's very much integrated into Trustpilot. Trustpilot is a global company. So, so my leadership team, I have my CFOs in New York. Uh, my, my head of product development is in Edinburgh. Uh, my new COO is in Berlin. So, so we're really very distributed. Uh, what we try to do with the U.S. as we try to do for, for most other things is to make sure that people know, you can say, their world the best. Uh, and, and so I'm, we're really trying to, to empower the, the U.S. You can say team and, and, and people there as much as possible. I mean, there, there's so much that's lost in translation and so much is lost in, over the Atlantic. I, I, I like to say, like, if, if you're in Europe, you have no idea what's going on in America. And if you're in America, you have no idea what's going on in Europe. It's very hard to get your head around it. And it's also just how, how different those worlds are. So we really try to, to empower uh, our U.S. Uh, employees. Uh, but then at the same time, uh, we are one company. We are not, you can say, a multitude of, of smaller companies. We are one business. And so when we make strategic decisions, we make them uh, globally. It's not like that they have their own, uh, you can say, product and tech teams that are only doing things for the U.S. Rather, it is we make a, a strategy, and America is very, very important for that strategy, and then that gets done by Trustpilot as a, as a global business. And do you, do you have a U.S.? sort of managing director or president or something as well as a market leader? We, we've had, uh, you can say, we've been back and forth in multiple models. For a long time, we had, a you can say, a, a president of, uh, of, of America. Uh, now we just have various functional leaders that are uh, based there. I think my recommendation to people initially is to, is to make sure you have... Ideally, the founder, the CEO there, um, but you, you need very senior management presence uh, in America. For a very long time, we had the global uh, chief commercial officer there. For, for the last five years, we've had our CFO there. Um, I, I, I never, you can say, relocated to New York, but, but I've, I've spent, I think, more than a year, uh, you can say, in, in, in total uh, in America. Um, so, so you need to be there to understand what's going on, and you need very senior people in the in, in your business to be there to understand what's going on. Yeah, and and why didn't you relocate? And you, know, you, you said you would now advise a founder potentially to relocate, but you know, what what was the reason you didn't? And do you think that was you're saying you you know in retrospect maybe it would have been smarter if you had, or it was different dynamics. Yeah, I think I think as the as the as the founder and CEO in a, in a European business, it's really tricky because um, what I see some people do is that they relocate very early, like a Sendesk, uh, where there are very few people, and then they move the entire business to America, more or less. So, I mean, so of course, some people stay behind, but the entire leadership is now America-driven, and that's one model that works. But then, if like Trustpilot, you have a hundred people in Europe. Uh, and like we had, and uh, then you have, say, maybe seven people in America, um, like 95% of your revenue is European. And so moving away from that and all the headcount and all the things you want to solve here was very difficult um, because I, I was still very much needed in Europe. And, 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 and you can say to some sense Europe was, was back then uh, funding the, the U.S. Uh, expansion. Um, so I felt very torn between uh, those two things, um, and then then I, I had some family uh, situations that just made it, uh, you, 
you and say took the choice on my behalf. Have you learned anything around what's the best way of running a leadership team which is so spread spread out geographically? Yeah, yeah. I think a couple of things. First of all, it's extremely. I mean, it sounds obvious, but it's so important to to want the same thing. Uh, so, so I'd say that's that's rule number one. And then rule number two is that the leadership team has to see itself as the first team. Where, where I've really failed in the past was that I had a lot of great divisional leaders that saw them as the leader of their, you can say, division, and and saw them as head of that first rather than a member of the exec team first. And so it's really like you are loyal to your other team members over your loyalty to the function. Those are my two like big lessons. And how do you inculcate that? Or how do you, is that a matter of the maturity of the leaders? Is it a matter of the sort of time you spend together? Or is it being very explicit about that? So I think that um, partially it's about really being clear about what kind of behavior you uh, you tolerate partially it's also about uh, you can say what wh- what do you choose for and in some sense in the past i was i was much too tolerant to having geniuses as leaders that work poorly together because they were geniuses and and i and i and i, and I probably i should have traded a little bit of genius for a little bit of uh, you can say ability to to to, to work together and, and 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 function well as a team and then also i think i think personally i was under investing in, in how much it takes and and i think i think a lot of teams are under investing in in just the time and dedication it takes to getting this right it, it, it's like i think every leadership team needs couple therapy so 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 we have a coach we call it a, a team coach and takes us through numerous frequent sessions uh and it's a little bit like every time we go into this meeting i'm like oh god really now i don't have time for this and then afterwards i'm like wow this was so impactful i didn't know that 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 this was an issue and that was an issue and i'm so glad that we we uh, we came ahead of that so so i think relationships just take work and so does it to be a, a, a part of that. It, it just takes so much work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 what about the broader team? How do you how do you maintain and get that alignment when you're so dispersed geographically and uh, etc. I think I think again it comes down to being very clear about why are we here? What is it that we want to do? We're a business that cares about trust. We care about integrity. We care about the helping customers get a great experience like 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 if if you can if you can really be clear on why are we here that that's that's where it starts and and if if and and, and then if you can be really clear about what the strategy is like like i mean maybe current employees or previous employees less smiling when i say this because we, i mean we as a business like i wouldn't claim to be the uh to be the one who should give a podcast on that topic but i think that like having that, like having that really, really clear, a clear sense of mission and vision uh, is, is if, if people have shared goals, they can disagree about the means. They can disagree about like like who's an idiot and who's not an idiot, and <laughs> uh, and, and and all that. But but at least if you want the same, uh, that, that that's a start. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that. And I'd I'd like to just turn, you know, just the last few minutes, just to your your IPO given it was just in, in, in March 2021. 
So what, what led to you choosing London in particular? We've been talking all about your international expansion and, you know, through across the US and as well and elsewhere in the world now. Yeah, why did you, why did you go to London and did you consider uh, any alternatives? I think London was really the, the obvious alternative for us. Like we, we did have spreadsheets and PowerPoint presentations where lots of alternatives were presented and pros and cons were outlined and so on. So, so I had a, a bunch of people doing a lot of very diligent analysis on lots of places. But in, in the UK, we're really a household name. And, and, and we just see that, that in every aspect, there's a premium on being that. Uh, also, when it comes to, 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 you can say, your IPO location and to speaking with investors and so on. And so, so I think that's the market where we get the biggest liquidity and, 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 and where we're getting the most leverage from, from the brand we have. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so much, I think so many of these things from when we've looked and talked and all the experience we've had with uh, companies as they internationalize, it's sort of where your market is drives so many of the other decisions fundamentally you know it's sort of and as you shift and then, and then it's the dynamics of how you get there but uh yeah ultimately knowing where your tam your addressable market is 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 key and finally i'd, I'd love because i know you've spoken about this before uh about maintaining creative energy uh, i would just love you to share more about how you do that and how you maintain it I think, uh, yeah, I, I think if when you're starting a business, starting a business in, is in itself very interesting. The first time you hire somebody, that's extremely interesting. Uh, the first time you have to let somebody go, that's extremely terrifying. Um, the first time you hire people that are more experienced than you, it's incredibly rewarding. The first time you raise money, uh, it, it can feel very unreal, uh, very thrilling, exciting. We're growing. The first time for everything is usually exciting. But, but then after a while, you can say the novelty of, of, of uh, raising money or hiring another exec or, or doing another team event, and, and it all wears off. Um, I, think, I think there are two things for me that, that have lasting value. Uh, one is who do you work with? If we're back to back and, and, and are inspiring each other, and, 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 and then it's a joy. A little bit like if you're on a road trip and if the car breaks down. Like imagine if it breaks down and it's really not with people that you'd like to be with. <laughs> it's a horrible experience. But if you're with your best friends two years from now, it's just a good story. And and, and the other thing is is, is being um, purpose-driven. I think after a while, like things like revenue growth and, 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 and how what's the valuation of the business and all that, it, the novelty of that also fades so, but but why are you here? Why are you on this planet? So, just doing something that you think matters, and then I think I think also you get inspired in sprints. But but in some sense, I mean, so it's it's like it's a marathon, and it's a sprint. So 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 in the sense that I've been at this now for for fifteen years, and and sometimes you have to take it a bit easy so that you can sprint when it's uh, when it when it's needed. Because, for example, like in, in an IPO process where you're just like full on, there's energy in that. Absolutely. Whereas if you just have that constant, uh, so, so a little bit, what, what's this guy who wrote The Seven Habits? Uh, make sure you uh, sharpen the knife. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Covey. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's that recharge time and that balance. And I mean, it feels, it comes across, I think that, I mean, maybe, you know, 
there is a sort of there is an element to me which really thinks it's a very Danish sort of uh, style of way of looking at life as well and the world. Is that fair to say? And is that sort of um, do you think that comes through in how you've built Trustpilot? I think to some extent it comes through, and and I, I think that there's also like a a final. You can say great advice for for people starting in America uh, is 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 that money matters much more in America. America, money is life and death. Uh, in in America, if you don't have money, you are in a horrible, horrible place. Uh, if you do have money, it, it means your children are getting an education. If you don't have money, they don't. Whereas in uh, in Denmark, I mean, of course, like some people don't have a great time, but it, you you can fall harder in America. And so, so appreciating that incentives really matter, and, and that they matter more uh, than they do in Europe is important. I'm not saying that Europeans don't care about it, uh, but but it, it somehow it, it, it's it's more. It's just America. It's just a more serious game, <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like in, in that sense. And 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 you think Trustpilot has evolved? I mean, you talked about like, the compensation and the incentives before as well. You think Trustpilot's evolved in that way as a business as well to try and sort of integrate that sort of an American approach into from being a European company. Yeah, for example, and it's a little bit counterintuitive. Like, for example, one of the best things we did in America was to guarantee um, the bonus for the employees. The usual logic is that usually in America, you can say the textbook is that you can have a, a bigger percentage of bonus as base than, than you can in Europe. And, and ironically, I find that it's the other way. The great thing about Denmark is that there's this safety net. Uh, and that allows you to focus on what matters. That allows you to take chances. It allows you to build uh, businesses. And so, so I think if if you can extend that safety net uh, internationally, that's something I have great experiences with. I, fi- I find I find culturally, you, you just get so much better choices and energy, and and people can focus on what matters if if if, if they feel that there's a safety net for them. Hmm. That's super super interesting, and I. I think on on that note, because we've covered so much ground in this conversation, I think there's a there's a, there's a some real wisdom there. I would like to uh, suggest we bring this to an end and uh, give you a, a huge thank you for giving up so much of your time today to talk to us and for for being so open. Uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation. No, thank you, thank you, Dom, and and uh, hopefully um, people found it useful. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Next time, to end our series, we'll have index partner Danny Reimer speaking with Farfetch founder Jose Neves about Farfetch and its global transformation of the luxury industry. Were there times along the way, because honestly, Jose, I did not see them, when you had some, you certainly hit it for me if you felt it, where you had some doubts as to whether Farfetch was going to win. See you next time.